Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Marchalero, and this week my guest is Dr. Kiki Sanford. Kiki, hello. welcome to the show. Hello, hello. You are Thank you. a frequent guest on this show. I believe this is your seventh appearance. Seven? Oh my goodness. You that's, are right up there. I think you're fantastic. tied with Kelly Goulant for the most number of appearances on Background Mode. You are one of my favorite guests. The listeners will find out if they haven't heard you before. And those frequent visitors to Background Mode know you well. But just in case, I want to give you an introduction for the new listeners. Thank you. You are a neurophysiologist with a PhD from the University of California. Early in your career, you obtained a bachelor's degree in conservation biology, a field that covers animals, their environment, and how humans impact them. Today, you're a very popular science communicator and the creator of This Week in Science, the podcast and radio show. And as I said before, this is your seventh appearance on the show. I love having you on the show because your your podcast, This Week in Science, covers all sorts of interesting things. And every time I read up on something you've done, I go, oh, that's cool. I want to talk to Kiki about that on the show. Yeah, so. we always love, I mean, it, it's just fun to find really interesting scientific discoveries and, and talk about them. Yeah, and figure out how they relate to you and your life and your ecology and your health and your yeah. neighborhood and your, your personal science perspectives. That's always cool. I want to do something a little different this show. I want to start off with uh, some recent science news that appeared on This Week in Science. That What is your favorite? And we'll get to my list afterwards. Tell me okay, what piqued awesome. your interest. Uh, let's see. So recently, I guess last month, mid-July, the big story of the month was Elon Musk's company, Neuralink, published a couple of papers, uh, some a white paper that discussed their brain-computer interfaces. Now, these brain-computer interfaces are pretty typical for what has been already developed, but they have advanced it a little step further in two key ways. One of them is they have dramatically increased the number of electrodes that would actually interface with the neurons in your brain they've made them smaller they're kind of flexible and there's a lot of there there's a lot of them which would allow for really high resolution um, detection of electrical signals in the brain the second one is that they've created a robot surgeon to put these electrodes into the brain oh that sounds exciting yeah so it's gonna be (laughs) robot brain surgery they're not on the surface right they kind of they drill into your skull actually yeah, so the the way that this works so far, as far as I'm aware, they don't uh, brain computer interfaces don't go super deep into the brain. For the for the large part, they interface with uh, the cortex on the exterior of the brain. So yes, they do have to drill a hole in your skull to access the brain. Um, but once within the skull, they're not digging deep inside your brain. Um, They're going to be pretty much on the surface and interfacing with, say, the visual cortex to uh, be able to get signals uh, from from your eyes or uh, to bring in signals from, from the world. Uh, and then additionally, you could be the motor cortex, which in the case of these particular Neuralink interfaces, I believe their main goal as a business is to develop therapeutic interfaces that would, say, help people who are paralyzed. And so they would uh, get the electric signals from the motor cortex and be able to uh, 
to interface with, say, a um, a robotic or an exoskeleton, arm. exoskeleton, or yeah, something of that sort. Yeah, external, maybe an extra limb for those of us who just need more. You know, is this something that's self-contained and battery-powered? And I saw a photo of the, at the website that looked like a thing behind your ear. Was maybe is that the battery pack? Yeah, I mean, that's where the primary interface takes place. Uh, and then they're using Bluetooth to be able to send those signals that come from the brain to the computer itself so that you're not actually having to wear a giant computer pack or uh, wires coming from your head aside from this small device behind your ear. It's uh, The really neat thing about these technologies is that we are minimizing their size as we move forward, which is very exciting. So we don't end up with the big bulky computers attached to our heads that would make it really not the kind of thing that you'd want on your head in the first place. Is this in the R&D phase, or is it close to actual experimental is, use? Uh, they are hoping to get into human clinical trials before the end of this year, uh, but I don't know if that's going to be possible. So far, they have been doing animal tests, and this is definitely still in development. This is, uh, this is still... I mean, they're moving quickly. They have one of the... I, I looked at their team of scientists and engineers, and it is impressive. They have got some of the best brains at work on this brain technology. And I, I mean, I, if anyone can do it, they can. The question is, beyond the therapeutic uses, where do they want to take it? And Elon Musk actually talked a little bit about his kind of uh, his his future vision for this stuff and the idea is that we all will become one with artificial intelligence at some point in the future that everyone will have these interfaces and because he thinks that artificial intelligence is going to take over the world at some point we can't try to beat them so we should join them sounds an awful lot like borg Scary. <laughs> One of us, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, my first reaction was when you mentioned uh, a uh, mechanical arm uh, for handicapped was a uh, possibility of uh, real-world use in sports, where oh, you have a football player who wants to throw a 70-yard pass with high accuracy. So the you take the input from the visual cortex and calculate what is going on downfield and do a real-time simulation of the movement of the player and then send the signals to the arm, and the arm throws this pinpoint touchdown pass 70 yards down the field. Yeah, you know... Or a tennis player I, well, who never hits the net. Right. I, I mean, while this is... You can imagine something like that working, I think it would be more useful for, say, um, disabled athletes who want to gain some aspect of sure. their of their ability back because they've either lost sure. it or they want to play a sport that they can't because of their disability. Um, but when it comes to the brain and our ability to estimate these things, computers are still trying to catch up with what humans can do. Yeah, but I don't think it's going to be too long before AI augmentation uh, appears as a tool for us to use directly in our brains as opposed to, you know, Absolutely. on the computer display. Yeah, cool. Yeah. We'll but have to who, see how that plays out. 
Yeah, the question is, who's going to want to do this? Who will the beta, beta testers be? <laughs> is it, you know, I, I still have lots of questions about being connected by my brain to uh, either a computer for whatever purpose, you know, to my cell phone, right? My smartphone. Do I really want to be able to talk to my phone with my brain? Or is it good to have some separation? Well, I just, definitely understand with disability, but beyond that, I'm like, hmm, but that's just me. I was just reading this morning, you know, we talk about AI as taking over the world, and then there are the people who talk about AI as assistive in many regards. And I was just reading an article this morning, I forget where it was, about why people continue to um, leave pets and, and small children in hot cars. And mm. there's just some science apparently behind that, too. It's not on my list, but I thought I'd bring it up. Apparently, there's this thing called prospective memory and habit memory. And yeah. prospective memory is where you have a note to yourself to do something in the future, like uh-huh. get your kid out of the car and take him in with you, or you put the uh, Starbucks coffee on the roof of your car and then well, you unlock it and you forget to grab it off the roof and it flies yeah. away in traffic. And the failure of the prospective memory is something that I think we could use assistance for. We do it right Absolutely. now with computers, you know, like we have to do lists yeah. and notes. But if you could have a little mental AI assistant that has a sort of a, a go get your child first in first out pet. list, you know, of things to do like right now, you know, <laughs> put yeah, your Apple I Watch mean, in the morning before you leave in the bedroom. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really true. I mean, past past you has a much better view of future you, <laughs> and present you is looking back at past you going. Wow, you were so optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's my turn. I have a list of things that you've talked about on the show that fascinated me. Yeah, and what do you want to talk one, about? Number one on my list is tardigrades. Tardigrades on the moon. Yeah. So what is a tardigrade and how did they get there? <laughs> Tardigrades are otherwise known as water bears, and they are these little tiny animals, microscopic microscopic animals, that you can find all over the place. They live in moss, and they are very hardy little creatures, and so they are the subject of scientific study by a lot of people because we want to figure out how they do what they do. What are their genes and proteins that allow them to dry out? So they they live in this nice wet environment that periodically dries out. And when that happens, they go into a dormant state. It's called the tun state. And that dormant state can exist without any harm to the organism for almost 100 years. Oh, my. We have reanimated tardigrades that are about a hundred years old uh, that were preserved, and they are—they just start start going, living. They, you know, go back into their active state again, and they're they're perfectly healthy and fine. They're able to withstand uh, solar radiation, all kinds of radiation that would normally cause mutations in our DNA. Their DNA fixes it. Their DNA withstands it, and so we wonder how they do that. And um, well, an Israeli company that sent this private mission to the moon recently had a bunch of tardigrades on the moon. It was on purpose in, to study them. On to study it, right? To yeah. see, but they were supposed to be contained in the craft, and well, that craft it crashed on the surface of the oh moon, my. and we have no idea 
what happened to those tardigrades. It's very possible that the crash destabilized the environment that the tardigrades were in so quickly that they didn't have a chance to go into that ton state that would allow them to stay dormant on the surface of the moon. Yeah, maybe they um, disintegrated. Maybe they, yeah, maybe they disintegrated and died, you know, maybe, uh, it, but there is the possibility that they are still in a sealed container and totally fine and living their happy tardigrade lives on the surface of the moon. Um, they could be in a dormant state on the surface of the moon. Um, we don't know. We have to go to find out because we have absolutely <laughs> no idea. Pretty soon in a hundred years, they'll want a piece of our action. Right. And so uh, tardigrades have been discussed because they're so hardy as maybe, you know, people people talk about the idea, maybe tardigrades were some part of the uh, of the panspermia in the solar system, the spread of life from uh, from planet to planet to planet to rocky body from rocky body. Right. Where they carried here on an asteroid. Probably not. But because they're so hardy, there's this question. Could organisms have moved from one planet or rocky body to another and survived and evolved to create life as we know it. Um, and could this have, have started other places in the universe? Well, now we did it on accident, <laughs> but it's not, I mean, it's, it's really not the first time there's already astronaut poop on the moon. Oh, really? Yeah. There are bags of human waste from the Apollo missions that were left left on the moon. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought they had to bring everything back. No, they left a bunch of stuff there so they could bring bring back rocks and other things. (laughs) Lunar exchange program. (laughs) It is. Um, And and then we know, like there was a there was a study that we talked about at the beginning of July about various mold species that we have discovered they they blasted them with gamma rays like way more than you would get here on earth earth probably more than you would necessarily get in space and these this mold survived and so the question is how much stuff is on the outside of our spacecrafts how much stuff that we just don't know about have we already sent to mars have we sent to the moon well, NASA pays a lot of attention to the sterilization of the components. They've been doing that for a long time, and it's very notable. But as yeah. you say, mistakes could occur, or, yeah. or things could be overlooked that are that are thought to be, you know, sanitized and, and, and not really. So, yeah. And the big question now is, that people are starting to ask, especially with relation to this Israeli crash on the moon, what? is the regulation with regard to planetary protection for private companies because the new space private space industry is getting rolling Mm -hmm. and eventually it's not just going to be NASA or ESA or you know whatever national space program sending stuff places it's going to be private companies and do we are, are they beholden to the same standards yeah, I talked to NASA, former NASA engineer Darren Beyer a few weeks ago, and we discussed that topic. Yeah. There's a space treaty that says you can't claim territory and, and make it sovereign for your own purposes, but there's nothing that says you can't mine the moon, bring material right. back, or use it. Or, or drop a tardigrade there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Considering how international treaties go these days, it's difficult to imagine a lot of unity on that. Yeah. So, 
Well, we've come to the end of the first segment of the show, and as our custom, it's time to take a short break. Folks, we'll be back in 60 seconds after this commercial message. I'm chatting with scientist Dr. Kiki Sanford. We'll be right back. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI slash CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are native SSD storage, a 40-gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers, including the newest in Toronto. Pay only for what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. Plus, 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy and maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and backup your cloud. To learn more, visit linode.com slash bgm. That's l-i-n-o-d-e dot com slash bgm. And receive a $20 credit when you use promo code BGM2019. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with neurophysiologist Dr. Kiki Sanford and host of this week and founder of This Week in Science. So next on my list, something near and dear to my heart, dark matter. Older than the Big Bang, possibly. Let me set this up a little bit. It had been assumed previously in theoretical astrophysics that there came a time when there was an instability, a Big Bang occurred, and there was an explosion, and then there was a period of what's called inflation, where the universe expanded dramatically in a short period of time, and then in its plasma state started cooling and started forming particles that became the hydrogen of the universe. Well, now scientists are starting to hypothesize that maybe the inflation came first. And there's a way to check that. And there's a recent study that did a mathematical framework that suggested, take it away, Kiki. Right. It suggested that... uh that these scalar fields that we could measure, it suggested that uh, dark matter was around before the Big Bang. Wow. And that we can use these, uh, these scalar fields that can be measured to go back to this cosmic inflation period, which they're now calling a, a pre-Big Bang epoch. And uh, that it may, that dark matter maybe older than the known universe itself. The way we check that is the imprint that's left on the formation of galaxies, right? Yeah. They've been trying to do things like this, but nobody's looked at dark matter in this particular way before. So it is a, it's a new perspective on this really unknown thing because we still don't know what dark matter is. We don't have any clue about where it might be in our galaxy we haven't detected it yet we have sensors we see it in other galaxies we see its effects in other galaxies because of the the rotation velocities of stars and galaxies and we deduce that there's more matter there than than the visual light from the stars suggests 
but we right. haven't found any in our own galaxy yet. It's kind of weird. Not, not yet, but the uh, the estimates are, which I think is so fascinating. People talk about how much dark matter is uh, maybe in in the Earth, right? How much dark matter is in the Earth? And I've heard a, a couple of physicists use uh, use little animals as their as the way of describing it. And we interviewed a physicist. A theoretical physicist a couple of weeks ago, who uh, who said that it's about the size of a of a kitten for the <laughs> so, entire Earth. For the entire Earth, yeah, that the oh amount my. of dark matter you could would would fit in the palm of your hand like a baby kitten. How much equivalent mass is that? It's a lot. It would be the heaviest kitten. <laughs> <laughs> I not, mean, you really not like, would, a, not like a black hole, though, but but very no, massive. not like a black hole. But you probably would not be able to pick up this kitten. <laughs> so what we're seeing is the aggregate of all this dark matter yeah. in galaxies that affects the rotation and the velocities of stars. But when you get right down to it, on a piecemeal basis, on an individual planet, there isn't a whole lot. Yeah, not very much. It's very, it, yeah, and it's supposed to, dark matter is supposed to be the stuff that has helped the formation of our galaxies and galaxy cl- clusters um, by kind of, it creates the clumpiness in the universe. It's this extra mass that kind of holds everything together. Um, but yeah, funny where the it physicist, came from. Funny the physicist used a kitten or a cat as a metaphor. Yeah, I've not, also not heard a bowling a ball, not a brick. <laughs> Not a cigar box, not an iPhone, but a no. kitten. You a kitten. <laughs> right. The other animal was a squirrel that I uh, heard a physicist talk. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, the forefront of theoretical physics on just exactly how inflation happened, first described by Alan Guth, and I think it was in the 1980s, where he, in, in, <clears throat> what's the word? He supposed this idea of inflation to account for the current uniformity of the universe. And uh, for a long, long time, we thought it happened right after the Big Bang, and then we tried to figure out why it stopped. And it solves a lot of problems, but it creates new problems, as astrophysical theories do. So we'll continue to watch on that forefront. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so the next item that very much interested me that kind of went against my personal mental model was the impact on kids with older parents. You talked about how um, it seems that older parents, when if kids are raised by older parents, they have fewer behavioral problems. Did I get that right? Yeah. Yep. Why is that? We don't know. Uh, the study didn't look into the, the actual reasons behind this difference, but mm. it seemed uh, the, the reason they, they asked this question is that we do know that older parents have uh, more mutations, more DNA damage uh, aspects, say um, older fathers, there are particular aspects of uh, of their offspring say they're born premature more often or there are other uh, health issues that are related to that and yeah. as more women also are delaying pregnancy until they're older a lot of IVF happening um, how is that affecting 
the children, right? And so that was the question they were really starting to try and look at. But they weren't looking at the genes of the children. They were looking at the behavior of the children. And if there were genes that were negatively impacting behavior, you would expect to see it. And they did not at all. And in in fact, they found that behavior of these kids is better than kids of younger parents. And so we postulated on the show that maybe it's older parents have you know, they have a little bit more life experience and can can deal with their kids a little bit better. Maybe also they're older and have more that maybe they have more time to spend with the kids or they have more resources to put into uh, parenting than, say, younger parents might. Now, I suppose we're talking about people in their early 30s as opposed to parents in their late teens and early 20s. No, this is, uh, these were, they were looking at uh, significantly older. I mean, they looked at a large population of individuals with a spread of ages, uh, with uh, parents going into their 60s. Oh, yeah, adopted children? Adopted? No. These were all natural-born children. So the parents that were in their 60s, that was... uh, fathers more often than mothers. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Not moms having kids at 60. I, yeah, I was wondering about that. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah mothers, I, always, they, I think they had mothers going into their 40s, though. The conventional wisdom, is that's the word I was searching for earlier and couldn't bring up. The conventional wisdom, I think, is that young parents are healthier, stronger, more, have more mm-hmm. stamina, are more willing to put up with... Uh, difficulties of late night sessions with babies waking and crying and needing food and and constant attention whereas it kind of wears on older parents a bit but maybe that pales in comparison to the to the calmness and the wisdom of the the parents as you said and when it comes to the (laughs) teenage years right the wisdom of aging (laughs) (laughs) all right yeah i don't know don't know the next topic is TESS. TESS yeah. is the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite that replaces Kepler. Kepler was the first satellite that was able to detect planets in orbit around distant stars by measuring and seeing the eclipses, assuming we're in the plane of the planet's orbit and can see the eclipse in the very, very slight dimming of the star as the planet passes in front of the star. Kepler was designed to look for a long period of time at some very distant planets. TESS is more oriented towards closer planets and brighter planets in the hope that we can find planets that we might be able to even image or do chemistry in the atmosphere. So you talked about some recent findings of uh, TESS. Right. TESS has been finding some very... uh, I guess, intriguing exoplanets uh, very close to us. And one of them has made the news that people are very excited about, but I think it's gotten sensationalized a bit compared to the reality. A super Earth that might be just like Earth and that we might be able to live on. And it's not very far away. 31 light Um, years, right? Yeah, 31 light years, this super Earth, which is, you know, it's far away. We haven't (laughs) really gotten, we've we've gotten past the, uh, you know, the shock wave of the edge of our solar system, but we're still in our solar system. We're not even outside of the Oort cloud yet when it comes to the Voyager missions. The idea of sending people 31 light years away, that's still in the distant future. Yeah, just but, to put into perspective here for real quickly, our, our, our deep space probes travel 
at very, very roughly a thousandth the speed of light. So it would take <laughs> 31,000 years for a high-speed spacecraft to get to this planet. So Yeah, we need those tardigrade genes for dormancy. <laughs> Return from subroutine. Okay, carry on. Yeah. Um, so this super-Earth is exciting, but the thing that I think the sensational aspect that the headlines miss, of course, is that this super-Earth was not directly imaged by TESS. It was the uh, gravitational effects on other exoplanets that they saw transiting the star in this particular system. Mm. So they they found a couple of other little planets very close in to this star and they were passing in front of the stars causing a little shadow that Tess goes oh there's a dimming of light Mm -hmm. there's probably something there and there's a wobble not only in those little planets but also in the star itself and so that wobble they can then mathematically analyze and say okay there's something else there compute the mass that causes the wobble figure out that it's probably not a brown dwarf or a black hole but probably planetary in mass exactly and so it they think it's a little bit bigger than earth it's not it's just like maybe one and a half times the mass of the earth but uh in that we still don't even we haven't looked at it we don't know what its atmosphere is like this is all a big guess it's like there's something there we think because it's close in it's going to be a rocky body like earth but it's not and not be this a gas planet uh, and so yeah the, the news is saying super earth future home we're gonna go there i continue to be uh, fascinated by this <laughs> By this news uh, slant that, oh, my God, we've discovered a new home. There have been science yeah, no. fiction series based on that, like Terra Nova on Fox a decade yeah. ago. And many other science fiction stories it. about, you know, well, we're in the midst of trashing this planet. So let's just go find some new place to trash. <laughs> I mean, it's good to have a plan B, but let's you yeah. know work on plan A for as long as we can. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but TESS is also, it's found some other things like a, a three-planet system that's very close. All of these planets that we're noticing, uh, the observation period for TESS was something like uh, it's 50 days maybe, so not even two months. But that limits how many things they can find because of the way TESS observes. It's, like I said, based on things passing in front of our field of view between us and a star that we're looking at. And if something is there but doesn't pass between us and the star, we're just basing our guesses on gravitational effects. Yeah, because we have to be roughly in the plane for TESS and Kepler to see these systems. Uh, the, those planetary systems that aren't in our is not in ours. Yeah, if we, we get the see. James Webb Space Telescope up there ever, <laughs> we will be able to look at these targets and and figure out what their atmospheres are like and what yeah, and, or we can aim Hubble at these places and and take closer looks. Yeah, I think we're on the verge, some by some means or another, of absolutely imaging uh, a nearby planet. Uh, an exosolar system. It won't be long before we have a real image and not an artist's depiction. Yeah. 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 Or something more than something that's just a few pixels of light (laughs) in a dark field. Yeah. 
So I think we have time for one more, and I'm going to pick up one that I think is right up your alley, and that is uh, climate change and shrinking animals. There have been some studies that suggest that perhaps is it birds have changed their, their, uh, their size over the years due to climate change. Yeah, Blair reported on this story, and the uh, the there are there's at least with this particular study, it was one species of bird that over twenty three years, yeah, is getting smaller with climate change. And it, the interesting thing is that the or I guess the question is, does this have to do with food availability and yeah. energetic aspects, or the like? Yeah, or the body. warmth does it also maybe have to do with the changes in the atmosphere and their ability to fly uh, because as the air changes that's going to change the fluid dynamics of the of what they are uh, passing through with their wings um, so there are all sorts of factors as to what's really leading it but energy of course energetic demands and these birds are getting smaller what else is going to get smaller? <laughs> How many other species are going to be limited in what kind of nutritional availability there is in their environment based you know, on of, climate change? One of the things I love about your show and about studying science in general is, is that there are people who spend long periods of time doing very careful studies using scientific technique and accounting for uh, variable isolation and doing long-term careful studies that are hard to interpret or even discover by normal people. And so the, our vision of global warming, global climate change, is simply limited to you know blurbs here and there in the newspaper on websites. But the aggregate of all this information about you know warmth, warming waters, algae in the water, killing pets, animals getting smaller in size, migration patterns, difficulties with penguins, on a large scale, if you I mean if you were to add it all up and look at all these effects, it's phenomenal. It really is, and I think more and more people are going to start running into the effects in their in their personal lives. Uh, and it, so far, it's been something that we can ignore or push. A, you know, ah, whatever. It's not here. It's someplace else. Oh, those little islands in the middle of the South Pacific. They're, you know, they're, they're sinking, but I'm not, you know, um, it's been something that is happening someplace else. And I, I believe that the effects are getting harder and harder to ignore because of all this amassing evidence. I think it's showing up in the food supply and I think it's showing up in the water. It's flooding rivers coming from the coming from the sky. I had Catherine Hale yeah. on the show months ago, and she pointed out. Oh, fantastic! Out, she pointed out that the uh, water that melts in Greenland, Alaska, and the Antarctic, eighty percent of that goes into the atmosphere, and twenty percent of it goes into the rising sea level. So it's a yeah. bit deceptive, you know. The the uh, sea, seaside areas are starting to get a little bit encroached upon, but it's not dramatic. What's dramatic is all that moisture that's absorbed by the warmer atmosphere, which can hold more water because it's warmer. And yeah, then it's dumping the change that water in into precipitation. Rivers. Right, yeah, we're getting getting more atmospheric rivers along the Pacific. There's uh, yeah a, a change in where the water is moving as well. So places that maybe didn't used to flood as much are flooding more now. Right. Um, 
Yeah, and that change in sea levels that, you know, you think it's going to happen the same everywhere, but part of that rise in levels has to do with thermal expansion. So the heating of the water as a result of the heating of the atmosphere. And so that makes it a very uneven thing. The sea levels are not rising the same everywhere. As the ocean tries to absorb that carbon dioxide, it becomes more acidic, and that leads to the loss of coral. It also leads to the loss of small animals, which are feeding the food chain. And when they die off... I mean, the, the big one that we've talked about on This Week in Science that I am most concerned about is the change of pH and how it's going to affect blue-green algae, the photosynthetic bacteria, algae, not bacteria, but the photosynthetic organisms in our ocean that give us a large portion of the oxygen that we breathe. Right, These organisms right. put oxygen in the atmosphere in the first place to allow life to evolve. And if we change the oceans too much so that they can't survive, what does that mean for us? There's a lot to study about this. Yeah. 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 I try to keep a very optimistic perspective, though. Uh, If you get a chance to speak with anyone from Project Drawdown, Jonathan Foley, I believe is his last name, uh, is the executive director there. Um, But they have a very optimistic perspective, which is that we can do things as humans to turn this around. The time, the clock is ticking for sure, but there are actions that we can take as not just individuals, but if we can get our, if we, if we can put our voting in the right places, there are uh, a lot of things we can do that will have very dramatic effect, effects very quickly. Absolutely. Well, we've come to the end of the show. I didn't get nearly through my list, but that was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me again. I mean, I always love coming to talk with you about this stuff. So I've been <laughs> chatting conversations. with So I'm folks, sorry. I've been chatting with neurophysiologist Dr. Kiki Sanford. Dr. Kiki, tell us how they how the listeners can contact you if they wish. Right. If you are interested in This Week in Science, you can find us at twist.org or any place podcasts are found. We're also on YouTube. And you can find me personally on Twitter at Dr. Kiki, D-R-K-I-K-I. Great, great. Folks, you've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode with John Marchalera and Dr. Kiki Sanford. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.